Do you know who you are? Sounds like a basic question. Do you know who you are? It's pretty fundamental to understand who we are, to be able to then live rightly or live according to our true identity. More specifically today, the question that I'd like to ask is, do you together, corporately, plural, know who you are as the church? Do we know who we are as the church of Jesus Christ? Sounds very simple. You probably think, well, of course, I know exactly what the church is. But if you had to articulate it quickly and clearly, you might find it a bit harder to answer than you think. I have found that to be the case even in the work of church planting, where, of course, the end goal of planting a church is that there is a church where there didn't used to be a church. And so it seems a very basic question. Well, we have to understand what a church is in order to be able to plant a church. But I have found that among conversations with church planters and even trainers of church planters, the, the, the notion or, or the, the details and definition of what is a church are pr- kind of fuzzy. They're fuzzier than you might expect them to be or like them to be. And so it's one of these things that we have lots of thoughts about it and surrounding it, but maybe we haven't done the work to really articulate, here is what the church is. And Peter gives us a really good answer in our passage today to the question of who is the church. Understandably, he is speaking in terms of that capital C, church universal, all the, the people of Christ. But those things will ring true even as you press them down into local church expressions. And understanding who we are as a church, as the church, is important for a number of reasons. It will help us, first of all, to understand the gospel more deeply. What is it that Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection? It'll help us to love Jesus more truly as we get a truer glimpse of what he's done and what he's created and what he's established in the church, our love for him, our affections for him grow. And it will equip us to live for his glory more faithfully. Because if we don't understand who we are, then we're going to be living out of some other sense of identity or purpose. So to understand who we really are is necessary for living faithfully for his glory. And so Peter gives us some really good, uh, a really good definition, I think, of the church in our verses today. So look with me at beginning at verse 4, and I'm going to read down through verse 10, and those will be the verses that we focus on today. So Peter has been calling the church to holiness, live a distinct life, a separate life out of reverence for God, knowing that you've been ransomed by the blood of Christ. And he spoke of the distinguishing mark of that separateness being love, the Christian's love uh, for one another within the church. And then he told us last week in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 what we need in order to cultivate that kind of community and that kind of love, namely the Word of God, a craving for and a continual feeding upon the pure spiritual milk of God's Word. And so today, he aims even a little bigger. It's like he zooms out to get a a fuller picture of who the people of God are. So beginning in verse 4, 
As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Praise God for his word. Ladies, I enjoy seeing you mouthing the words out there. You're doing great. How far have you gotten? Okay, all right. Excellent. So here's the definition of the church that I think Peter gives us kind of in these three movements. The church is God's new temple founded on Jesus Christ, proclaiming his grace to the world. The church is God's new temple, founded on Jesus Christ, proclaiming his grace to the world. And we're just going to take those one movement at a time. God's new temple. He begins in verse 4 by saying, as you come to him. Well, who's the him? So that points us, that connects this text to the verses that came right before it, where he had said that we ought to long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it we may grow up into salvation, if indeed, verse 3, you have tasted that the Lord is good. And the Lord in this context is none other than the Lord Jesus. So Jesus himself is in view in Peter's mind as the subject of verse 4. As you come to him, to Christ. And that is a present and ongoing action. He's not merely speaking of when you came to Christ, like in conversion for the first time. He's saying as we repeatedly, day by day, come to him, draw near to him, feed upon his word, persevere in faith, all these things he's been already instructing us about. As we come to him, What's happening? We're going to skip ahead just to verse 5. We'll come back to the content of verse 4 in a minute. But he says, as you are coming to him, verse 5, you are being built up as a spiritual house. You are being built up into a spiritual house as we come to him. And a spiritual house here, I will argue and try to demonstrate, is a reference to the temple. It is the temple of God. So what's happening as we continually draw near to him in faith, feeding on his word, trusting in him, 
is that we together are being built up into the temple of God, the new temple. Well, what does that mean? What is the significance of saying that the church is the temple of God? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is establish what was the temple in the Old Testament. What was the role of the temple among the people of Israel, the covenant people of God under the, uh, in the Old Testament? What was the role of the temple? And the simple answer is the temple represented the presence of God with his people. The temple was for the nation of Israel the place where God dwelt and where the priests of the people would go into his presence on behalf of the nation and make atonement for sins. And so the temple, and in the early days, like in Moses' day and the, the wanderings and all that, it was a big tent called the tabernacle. And in the later days, when Israel was more established as a kingdom, there was an actual you know, brick-and-mortar building, a pretty ornate and glorious building in Jerusalem um, that was the, the temple where, at least symbolically, right, God lived. Now, we recognize that God can't be confined to a building, like he's only in that one place. But for the nation of Israel and as their sense of identity as God's people, the temple was the presence of God. Four truths about the temple that I want to point out, and then we'll see how this text walks through each of those four aspects of the new temple. So the temple under the old covenant, first of all, was a physical place. All right? It was in the city of Jerusalem, on the hill of Zion, in a building. Right? It was a physical location a place that you could see and touch and enter and all that. It was a physical place. It was served by a priestly tribe. Okay, Everybody didn't get to go into the temple. Everybody didn't get to go into the presence of God. Really only the tribe of Levi, the descendants of Aaron, were the ones who served the nation as priests. And even among those priests, there was only one designated as the high priest who would get to enter one day a year into the inner part of the temple called the Holy of Holies or the holiest place in order to make a blood atonement for the sins of the people. Only the priests and really only the high priests would enter into the presence of God. And so this physical temple was served by a priestly tribe where animal sacrifices, that's the third aspect, were made to atone for the people's sins. The blood of bulls and goats were offered as a way of, of recognizing God's justice and the sin of the people. And so God would have them bring these animals to him to die in their place. And they would use the blood from these animals as a sacrifice. It was a physical place served by a priestly tribe who made animal sacrifices for the atonement of sins which were acceptable to God by the law. In other words, only as the priests carefully observed the rituals and rules and routines that God had prescribed for them, would he even accept their offerings. And there are some uh, examples in the Old Testament where people tried to go around the rules and offered unauthorized offerings, and it did not go well for them. And in fact, at times, God put to death people who made unauthorized uh, sacrifices because they didn't do it according to the law. They didn't do it by his word. 
So these four aspects of the temple sort of summarize for us the role that it played in the life of the people of Israel. It was a physical place served by a priestly tribe making animal sacrifices that were acceptable by the law, by the law of God. So now, if we look back at verse 4 and 5 of 1 Peter 2, we're going to see him walk through those elements of the new temple of the people of God. Look at this one more time. As you come to him, you are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is very significant for our understanding of the gospel, what it means that Jesus died and rose again for sinners, for our understanding of how the Old and New Testaments relate to one another. A lot of confusion about that. For our conception of God's eternal kingdom, like what is eternity going to look like? Who is God's people? Who are God's people? In taking the language and function of the temple and the priesthood of old covenant Israel and applying them to the new covenant church of Jesus Christ, Peter is clear and explicit. God has one people consisting both of Jews and Gentiles who are united with one another through faith in his anointed Jesus Christ. God is building for himself in Jesus Christ a people, one people. There are various sort of stripes or brands of theology, even evangelical, God-honoring, Bible-loving theology that would see God as having sort of two distinct peoples. He has the nation of Israel, and then over here he has the church. And in eternity, he kind of has both of those groups kind of separate, like separate but equal, right? That, that's kind of the, the sense that some understandings of this uh, give. And I think that those readings of the scriptures are flawed. In Jesus Christ, God is uniting disparate, divided peoples under the lordship of Christ. This is what he's doing. He's building us into a spiritual house, namely a temple. I don't think it's an accident that Peter is taking the most significant image, the most central identity marker of old covenant Israel and using that to describe the church of Jesus Christ. Now, critics of that theology will sometimes call it replacement theology. Like we're saying the church in our age has just replaced national Israel. I don't think that's really a fair description. It's not quite right. It's better to say rather than saying that the church replaces Israel, it's better to say that the church is actually God's true Israel. And Paul even speaks that way in Romans 9 through 11, speaking of, uh, of a spiritual Israel. He says that not all who are Israel are really Israel. It gets a little bit kind of confusing because he's speaking in terms of ethnicity and lineage on the one hand, and then he's speaking spiritually in terms of the new birth and faith in Jesus Christ. And he's saying the real Israel are those, Jew and Gentile, who trust in Jesus Christ. And God is building together this one people of God. We are children of Abraham because of our faith in his Messiah. 
So the church, as God's new temple is, let's look at these four aspects in, in sort of contrast to or comparison to the old covenant temple. The church, as God's new temple, is number one, not a place, but a people. The church is a people. Now, we probably, probably have heard that and understood that to some extent, recognizing the church is not a place or a building or a meeting space or whatever. It is the people of God who gather there. But it's really easy to get confused about that. And even Christians, I think, who understand the distinction can get sloppy in the way we talk about it, right? You drive past a a building where a church meets and you go, oh, look, there's a church. Well, not quite. That's that's a meeting space for a church, presumably. But the building itself is not a church. It's just a building, right? It's just bricks and wood and whatever and whatever else goes into making a building like that and it's a bit ironic for christians today to confuse the church with a building because it's the the very nature of the church is fundamentally distinct from the old testament reality of place-bound worship right the worship of god under the old covenant was centered around this hub in jerusalem of the temple Right? That was where the people of God worshipped. And, and even once a year, they were, intent, they were supposed to make a, a pilgrimage there. If they didn't live in Jerusalem, they were supposed to go to the temple. This was the center of worship for uh, Old Covenant Israel. But not so for the church. Not so in the, war, the people that Jesus Christ is establishing for himself. Now, perhaps it's a little easier for us because the building that we meet in is not even ours. Nobody's going to drive by Seven Oaks Elementary School and confuse it for a church, right? <clears throat> so maybe the distinction is a little bit easier for, for us to see. In some ways, that's probably a good thing. But the temple, the new temple of God in the church is not a place, but a people. So it's no longer location bound. And Jesus said as much to the woman at the well in John 4. You know, the, the, she said, our people worship on this hill and Jews worship on that hill. What's the real place to worship? And Jesus said, essentially, there is no right place to worship because God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, that location issue becomes uh, a non-issue because the new temple is not a place but a people. So let's not get the church's identity wrongly wrapped up with a building or a space, right? We want to make sure of that. However, we do want to highlight the implied truth of this reality. The church must gather, right? He's not saying that each individual Christian is a temple, although you could, you could probably extrapolate that, and you could see Paul speaking of that in 1 Corinthians 6. So I think it's not wrong to say that as individual Christians and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, there's a sense in which we're, we're a temple. But what Peter has in view here is a corporate reality, that we together are the temple. He says, you are individually living stones within this spiritual house. But the house is only visible when Christians gather. So the church together is an essential part of what it means for the church to be the church, for the church to be the temple of God. So the Christian who says, I love God, I believe in Jesus, but I can worship him better on the lake by myself, is missing a fundamental reality of what it means to be the people of God. You're not just a person of God. You're a part of the people of God. You're a part of the temple of God that he is building. Christians must assemble. 
The church as God's new temple is not a place but a people. Secondly, we ourselves are the priests. That's interesting. We serve both as the sort of dwelling place for God and we are the ones who serve in the temple as those who offer worship, right? We are the priests. Whereas under the old covenant, it was only a tribe among Israel that served as priests and even among them, only a select few who had the, the higher role and distinction of entering the Holy of Holies. Now, it's not wrong to see here a glimpse of what we might call the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, namely that each individual Christian has direct access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. That is true. That is right. But Peter's emphasis here, again, is not individual. It's corporate. You are not each one a holy priest. He is saying you are together a holy priesthood, right? You are being built into, built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And this is a collective corporate reality. Tom Schreiner says, Western believers tend to individualize the notion of priesthood rather than seeing the community emphasis. In the Old Testament, the priestly caste was limited to the tribe of Levi, and in that sense, only a portion of Israel could carry out the priestly function. All of God's people are now his priests, which is a remarkable reality. It is an identification and an expansion of, uh, in the work of Jesus Christ in making the church his new temple, and us, his priests. We all are serving together as a priesthood. Well, what does a priest do? That's the third aspect. Our priestly work is offering spiritual sacrifices. You see that right there in the middle of verse 5? You're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. It's important to note that the sacrifices we offer are spiritual ones and not literal ones. Under the new covenant, the offerings we give to God are not physical, but spiritual. Our need for continued blood sacrifice was satisfied at the cross. When Jesus offered up himself as a lamb without blemish or spot, which Peter himself said back in verse 19 of chapter 1, his once for all sacrifice perpetually meets our need for atonement, for being covered over. So we are welcomed into God's presence as his priests by virtue of the blood of Christ. So we don't make literal, physical, animal sacrifices, which is probably good on a number of levels, not the least of which is that we'd probably all be in jail all the time if we were actually sacrificing animals. But the more important reality is that we don't need to make sacrifices like that because Christ's sacrifice is enough. It covered our sins for all time. So what sacrifices do we make? If we're this, this holy priesthood in God's new temple offering spiritual sacrifices, what does that mean? I think there's two possible answers, and it's possible that both of them are in view here. Number one, I would say, is obedience and holiness. One kind of spiritual sacrifice we make is obedience. It's, it's lives of holiness. He's called us in this very context to be holy, right? As I am holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You're quoting the Lord there. So lives of reverent obedience before him are offerings of honor and worship that we can give to him. Obedience and holiness. I think the other thing that may be in view 
is that the sacrifices we give are those of praise and proclamation. Praise and proclamation. If you look down in verse 9, Peter connects this, and we'll come to this verse a little later, but Peter connects uh, the priesthood in verse 9 to the act of proclaiming. Look at verse 9, he says, among other things, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, right? So our vertical praise of God for his grace, as we speak to God, praise and thanks for his grace, and our horizontal proclamation, our person to person within the church, even in our community into the world, our proclamation of the gospel that has delivered us from darkness into light are spiritual sacrifices that we offer him certainly in our day-to-day lives individually, but especially and particularly in view here, I think, when the church gathers. Because we're this priesthood together, we've gathered to offer spiritual sacrifices. Maybe something like the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So the sacrifices that we make are no longer bulls and goats. The sacrifices we make are holy and obedient lives and lips that acknowledge his name in praise and in proclamation. And these offerings are acceptable to God, not through the law, but through Jesus Christ. Last phrase of verse 5. Offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because he has satisfied the law's demands for us, he has entered the holy place before us, so God accepts our worship on the basis of the work of Jesus on our behalf. Christ alone is the reason that we can come into his presence and offer him sacrifices of praise and sacrifices of obedience because Christ has made our offerings acceptable to God. So this is the reality of what it means to be the church. We are the new temple of God, where God dwells among his people. And he has this priestly work for us to do together of offering spiritual sacrifices of obedience and of praise and proclamation, all of that acceptable through the work of Jesus. Paul uses the same metaphor of of a building in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 22, he says, In him, that is in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this is a consistent New Testament teaching. The church of Jesus Christ is the new temple of God. God dwells among his people. And so it matters greatly how we live. It matters greatly how we relate to one another. It matters greatly how we steward the gospel that he's entrusted to us. He is with us. He is in us. So this is the first aspect of our identity as the church, right? In three movements. The first aspect is that we are God's new temple, a dwelling place for God by his spirit. But how does this new temple construction take place, right? How is it that the temple is being built? And what is the foundation of this new spiritual house? He answers that in verse four. So we're going to back up just a little bit. As you come to him, a living 
stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like spiritual stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So we recognize that we're coming to Christ, who himself is identified here as a living stone rejected by men and in the sight of God chosen and precious. And now he's going to expand on that in verse 6. Peter is going to quote Isaiah 28, 16. And so looking, uh, reading verse uh, 6 through 8, he says this. It stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We're going to stop right there and not keep reading yet. Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. That is, he is our foundation. So if the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, is the new temple where he dwells, the foundation of that temple is Jesus Christ himself. Now, in the, you have to understand this cornerstone situation, the, the metaphor of a cornerstone. In the architecture of the day, builders would have to find, they'd search carefully to find the straightest, flattest, most evenly angled stone to set at the corner of the house in the foundation. Because however that stone was oriented or angled, the rest of the building would follow. And so if the stone was a little bit kind of crooked or, or, or slanted or not smooth, then the rest of the house, the integrity of the entire building would be compromised, right? It's going to be not on a steady foundation. And so the cornerstone was quite simply the most important stone in the foundation of a building. The one upon which the rest of the building was established and oriented toward. And this is what he says of Christ. Christ is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And then in quoting Isaiah 28, he makes this very clear. I am laying in Zion, that's the hill where the temple is in Jerusalem. I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And there's a promise that accompanies this. And whoever believes in him, in the cornerstone, in Jesus Christ, will not be put to shame. What does it mean to not be put to shame? It means simply that what you're hoping in comes to pass. The thing that you are resting yourself on will prove true and reliable and faithful. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And this cornerstone is clearly, in Peter's mind, Jesus Christ. He's already referred to Jesus as a living stone in verse 4 and said of him that he was chosen by God and precious to him or honored by him. That word can be tra- in Tomas can be translated as precious or honored. But he makes it even more clear by this uh, quotation of Isaiah 26, which uses the same language of the stone that God would lay in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And he had spoken of the living stone as chosen and precious in the sight of God. So for Peter, as he considers the temple that God is constructing through the living stones of his people, it is clear and essential that the foundation upon which the house must be built is Jesus Christ. 
If the house is built on anything other than Christ and Christ alone, the house will not stand. The house will crumble. To quote Paul again in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, beginning of verse 19, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, the new temple of God. Well, why? By what virtue is Christ worthy of this designation, of the, the cornerstone, the foundation of the church? Namely this, Christ's status as cornerstone was secured by his resurrection. This is implied, I think, throughout this text. Again, back in verse 4, where he speaks of Jesus as a living stone. I think the living there must refer to the unending, resurrected life of Jesus Christ. We don't usually think of stones as being alive, but this stone, this cornerstone, is living. He is alive. And in the sight of God, this living stone is chosen and honored chosen and precious if you look again at at, or or look back to where uh, the response of people to jesus to this cornerstone it says he's rejected by men but in the sight of god chosen and honorable if you think of the rejection of jesus and what that means you can't help but think of the cross The rejection of Jesus is ultimately displayed by and culminates in his crucifixion, his execution in disgrace and dishonor. In contrast, in God's sight, he is chosen and he is honored. It can be precious or honored, as I said. And I think that since the rejection by men is in view, it makes sense to think of this as his reputation is in concern in this text. So it's probably better to, to see this as honored. He is chosen and honored in God's sight, even though by men he was rejected and disgraced. The honor in which he is held by the Father is the answer to his rejection and disgrace. Namely, God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. Men rejected him and crucified him, and God said, Nope, this is the stone upon which the whole thing's going to be built up. And he raised him from the dead, and he was exalted, and he was vindicated by his resurrection. That is the, the basis on which Christ becomes the cornerstone for the church through his resurrection from the dead. Peter connects his status as the living stone to his resurrection explicitly in a speech in Acts chapter 4 where he says that he's just healed a man and all the, the, the leaders are challenging them and telling them that they shouldn't be speaking. And they say, we demand to know who, by whose power, by whose authority is this lame man now walking. And he says uh, that he, he says, Jesus Christ, this is Acts 4 verse 10, Jesus Christ was crucified and God raised him from the dead. Oh, excuse me. I was actually, gonna, let me, let me read this to you. It'll be a little more accurate. I don't want to just summarize it. 
Here's what Peter says in answer to that question in verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So he takes that same quotation from Isaiah, and now he explicitly connects it, not just to Jesus, but to the resurrection of Jesus. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead, and now he's become the cornerstone, even though you rejected him. And it's right after that that he says, maybe one of the most famous verses in the book of Acts, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so Peter boldly proclaims the gospel of the crucified and risen Christ. And he suggests to us there that the resurrection of Jesus is what qualifies him, if you will, to be the foundation of the church. So the summary of verse four, this, as you come to him and this rejected by men in the sight of God chosen and precious, a summary would be to say this, Jesus was crucified by and for his own people, and God raised him from the dead. His rejection was the gateway to his exaltation, which reminds me of chapter 1, verse 11, where he says that the prophets of old were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted what? The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The rejection leads to the exaltation. The crucifixion ends in resurrection. That's the sufferings and the future glory that he has in view. So Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation of the church because of his resurrection. And so what's the result of this for people? And there's only two kinds. Maybe seeing those memes that kind of say like there's only two kinds of people and then there'll be a picture of like, you know, the Hershey's bar with the little squares and one is like, there's one square missing and the other is like just a big bite taken out of the middle of it. You're like, oh my gosh, right? There's the people who need it organized and then there's the people who just like take a whole bite out of the thing, right? So we divide people into two camps, right? There's only two kinds of people in the world when it comes to Jesus Christ and his identity as the foundation. Number one, he tells us in verse seven, so the honor is for you who believe. So the first category of people are those who believe in Jesus Christ and are thereby honored. Those in view, of the ex- in, in view of the exaltation of Jesus Christ through his resurrection from the dead, those who believe in him will receive honor at his appearing. And he's spoken to us about this earlier in chapter 1, where he said that uh, our our faith that is proved genuine would result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? This is vindication on the day of judgment. This is after all the suffering and after all the hardship and after all the rejection, when Christ returns, those who believe in him will be honored. The thing that they've been trusting in will prove true and they'll be found in him thus obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So observe this this interesting reality. The experience of Jesus Christ in rejection being the gateway to exaltation becomes the pattern for our experience as his people. 
his rejection, ultimately displayed by his execution, and his exaltation, that is his resurrection, provide the pattern for Christian life in a fallen world. We are rejected by the world, degraded, despised, dishonored. We'll feel that in various ways in different times. But we're destined for salvation, for glorification in eternity. So the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories of chapter 111 are thus spelled out for us, both in terms of Christ's experience and as a promise for what our experience will be as his people. Just as he was rejected and then glorified, so as we live through rejection and dishonor now, we have the sure hope that we will one day be honored and vindicated in the resurrection. If you're building your life upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, you can weather even the darkest and scariest of storms because you know that your rejection is the gateway to your exaltation. Your suffering now is simply the road that leads you to glory and honor and salvation in his presence when Jesus returns. So hang in there. I think Peter intends for us to take an encouragement here to suffering people. Hang in there. Glory awaits. Peter makes Jesus' position as the foundation even more plain by contrasting the experience of Christians on the day of judgment with the experience of the other category of people, namely those who do not believe. Look again at verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We have here two more quotations from the Old Testament that will express this truth. Those who reject the cornerstone, that is, do not believe in Jesus Christ, will receive the precise opposite of believers on judgment day. Shame and dishonor. Their choice to reject him will be seen for the self-destructive folly that it is. And it will be too late for rescue. The new temple takes its shape from Christ as its foundation. And those who don't believe will find themselves on the outside of it. I think that's what he is getting at in that quotation uh, in verse 7 from Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They looked over this stone. Nope, we don't need that stone. We reject that stone. And that became the very foundation of the whole building. So guess where the builders are? They're on the outside. They're not in the building. The cornerstone of Jesus Christ will either be the means of salvation, honor for those who believe, or the cause of destruction, stumbling for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling. So instead of using the stone to provide the foundation and build the house upon, they tripped over it. They rejected it, tripped over it. 
their rejection of him becomes the means by which they fall. This is sober and ought to provide a strong warning to any who are not in Christ to repent and turn and come to him. Even the unbelief and the rejection of some does not thwart God's purposes or disrupt his church building work through the living stones who believed in him. Look at verse 8. He's speaking, speaking of those who, dis, who did not believe and who rejected the cornerstone and stumbled over him. He says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, in one sense, they were destined to disobey God's word because God had prophesied that it would be so. And we've just seen two uh, places where that was the case. In Psalm 118, verse 22, where he said, he's laying a cornerstone in Zion, and those who believe in him will not be put to shame, but the builders rejected it, right? And then they stumbled over it. So it's been prophesied that they would reject him and that they would stumble over him. And so in that sense, their unbelief is itself a fulfillment of God's word through the prophets, so it could be said that their disobedience was destined because it had been foretold. That had been prophesied that they would disbelieve. And so now they're simply unwittingly in their own chosen unbelief, fulfilling God's promise. But in another, even bigger sense, I think Peter shines a spotlight on the mysterious, sovereign purpose of God, even over free human choices, including the choice to reject Christ in unbelief. To say that they stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do, I think points to the same reality that he opened the letter with on the converse. He opened the letter by saying that you are the elect, the chosen exiles of God. And here, the flip side of that coin is that there are those who have been destined to disobey and thus stumble. And I think the point of this teaching, challenging, heavy as it is, is that God, who is building his church upon the foundation of Christ the cornerstone, will surely succeed in the work that he set out to do. The church will be built, and all men, believers and unbelievers alike, will serve his purposes. C.S. Lewis said, we all serve God inevitably, but it makes a great difference whether you serve like Judas or serve like John. Even Judas fulfilled Scripture. Even Judas propelled God's plan for the betrayal and arrest and crucifixion of Christ. But you don't want to be Judas on the last day. Much better to serve him like John and the, the, the apostles willingly, humbly, gladly. So let me ask, what will it be for you? No one can avoid this fundamental question about Jesus Christ. He is either your cornerstone, the foundation upon which you build your life and in whom you find community and identity and eternal salvation, or he'll be your stumbling stone. And your rejection of him will become your eternal destruction and dishonor. We have to choose what's it going to be. So God is building a new temple in the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And the foundation of that temple is Jesus Christ. 
his death and resurrection providing the, the foundation for this building. And the final aspect of this definition that he gives us of the church, the new temple of God founded upon Jesus Christ is this, proclaiming his grace to the world. Proclaiming his grace to the world. Look at verse 9. And here again we have this immediate contrast with those who stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse 9, but you, not like them, but you are a chosen race. He's contrasting the church with the disobedient stumblers. And he tells us four things about who we are. We're just going to burn through this real quick. You are a chosen race. Once again, you're his people. He's marked you out for his own. You are a royal priesthood. Once again, he's brought back in this reality of the, the service that we offer to God in sacrifices. You're a holy nation. Not a literal geopolitical national entity, but a nation of his people. A people for his own possession. And all four of these statements would have been made uniquely of Israel under the old covenant. And Peter now applies them to the body of Christ, the church, the new temple of God. We are his chosen people, priests in his kingdom, a nation set apart for his glory and a people belonging to him as his special covenant community. That's who we are. Why? What's the purpose of his building us in this way and giving us this identity as his people? Look at the second part of verse 9. You are, all these things, a people for his own possession, so that, that is a purpose clause, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He saves us for himself. Our salvation is ultimately about God's glory, displaying God's kindness and mercy to the universe. He's purchased us for himself, and we've become trophies of his grace and goodness, testaments forever to his love and power in redeeming rebel creatures as his own. We are his people. And the last verse provides a beautiful picture of this transfer from darkness to light. Obviously, it's not a literal darkness and light that we're talking about, but a spiritual darkness from which we've been rescued. And Peter illustrates this by citing the Old Testament book of Hosea, the prophet of Israel to whom God gave the unenviable task of marrying a roving, unfaithful woman named Gomer. And Gomer's unfaithfulness as a wife to Hosea provides a sort of fleshed-out metaphor for the unfaithfulness of Israel to their covenant with God. That's kind of what's going on in the, the book of Hosea and the ministry of Hosea. But the metaphor extends throughout Hosea and Gomer's family as well. And even as they have children, their names begin to speak of realities of judgment. In Hosea 1, 6, Gomer has a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. This is a word of judgment coming to Israel in the very name he gives to Hosea's daughter. Hey, come here, no mercy, it's time for dinner. That's the name of his daughter. Because God will not have mercy, he says. And then Gomer has a son. And in chapter 1, verse 9, the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people. 
and I am not your God. These are not great names to have. But even worse than the names is the reality of the judgment of God. Saying, I will not have mercy on you. I will not be your God. You will not be my people. Because you've broken covenant. That's the reality here. But in the face of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, and even with these pronouncements of righteous judgment, God remembers mercy. In verse 10 of Hosea chapter 1, God makes this beautiful promise to Hosea. Yet, oh, thank you. I will not have mercy. You will not be my people. I will not be your God. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And again, he promises future grace and restoration in chapter 2, verse 23, saying, And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So all Peter is doing in, in verse 10 of 1 Peter 2 is repeating God's gracious promises to Israel through the prophet Isaiah and showing how he has applied those promises through Jesus Christ to his people, the church, the new temple. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, that's who we are. We're His people. We are those who have received mercy, undeserving kindness and love and forgiveness and blessing. As sinners and rebels who hated God, He's welcomed us. He's called us His. He's purchased us for His own. He's transferred us from darkness into light. This is who we are. Because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, God is building us into his new temple, founded upon Jesus Christ, proclaiming his grace to the world. How does your life match up with your identity? It's an important question. If you don't know who you are, you won't live like who you are, right? How does your life match your identity? How are your choices throughout the week reflecting the reality that you belong to God and to his new covenant community through Jesus Christ? Think about the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, what you choose for entertainment, the, the state of an investment in your relationships, the words that you speak, even the, the, the habits of grace that we cultivate, like feeding from God's word and seeking fellowship and care from other Christians in the church. Are you growing in obedience to Jesus and in proclaiming his grace to others? These are the, the, these are the descriptions or the markers of those who have been purchased by the grace of Jesus for God. Church, you are the new temple of God founded upon Jesus Christ, proclaiming his grace to the world. Let's live that out by his grace.